All right, I'm going to go ahead and read to you the 77th Psalm before we get going. This is to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a Psalm of Asaph. I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Was his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. And I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great as God, uh, a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. The waters you saw you, O God, the waters saw you, they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Okay, our sermon text today is Genesis 48. It's verses 1 through 7. So if you have your Bible, follow along, and we'll read that real quickly, and then we'll uh, analyze the verses that we have. Verse four, uh, Chapter 48, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Joseph was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Lutz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring whom you beget after them shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. In the Bible, we see God's hand of providence over time and situation. As we live our lives, one of the common themes that we come to experience is the sudden death of those around us. The plans that were made, the decisions that are put off for later, and the hopes of the great vacation or the wedding or the retirement all come to naught. I type my sermons about seven weeks in advance, and I do it for several reasons, which I'm not going to bore you with. The day that I began typing this sermon, I got a call from a friend and he told me that another one of our friends had died. He was shot in the head. It was sudden, and it was terminal. Two years earlier, he was shot in a gang-style 
raid and the girl that was standing right next to him was shot and killed and he was shot two times. He was shot in the back of the leg and in his hand. He survived though. And we met up with him on that Saturday morning and he was still bloody and he was still reeling from what had happened. We talked with him about Jesus Christ and we uh, told him about the life that is found in him. And after we talked to him, he'd often come up to us and he'd pray with us, but we could never pin down as to whether he had accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior or not. And if not, he probably thought that he had all of the time in the world to make that decision. His name was Javari and he was 26 years old. Unlike him though, we see how God graciously granted others the ability to set their houses and their affairs in order. These things met God's purposes for all of redemptive history. And so he made sure that they would know that they were about to die. King David, for example, though old and he had a disease that kept him cold all the time, he was never able to get warm. He was blessed enough by God to see his choice of sons, Solomon, sit on the throne after him before he died. Now, had this not occurred, because Solomon was also God's choice of son, a different, a violent son named Amnon would have assumed the throne and Solomon would have been executed. But God's plans always prevail. After Solomon's ascension, we read these words from David's mouth. Then the king bowed himself on the bed. Also, the king said thus, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given one to sit on my throne this day while my eyes see it. Today, we're going to see a similar occurrence that happened many centuries earlier and which has shaped the history of the world in ways which we cannot truly fathom. Today, we will see Jacob's decision to adopt the sons of Joseph. Our text verse today comes from Isaiah chapter 61. It says there, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good, good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The glory of God is the chief end of man, and to give God glory is the reason for our redemption. The Bible shows us the plan of how he did this in order to bring it about. And it does so in order for us to give him the glory that he is due. So let's go to this precious and superior word now, as we should all the days of our lives, and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is your son Joseph is coming to you. This is verses one and two. Verse one says, now it came to pass after these things. I'll stop right there in the middle of the verse. Context is king when reading the Bible. Many things are stated in an order which does not follow a chronological path, and it does so for a reason. When passages are chronological, they often are noted explicitly to highlight that fact. And it's done here, and it asks us to look back at what after these things means. So I'm going to read you our last section that we looked at. Here's what it said in chapter uh, uh, 46, I believe, is what we looked at. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 
17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said to me, swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. That was actually chapter 47. But uh, anyway, that's the context that we're looking at there. The Bible then is highlighting the fact that after the arrangements for Jacob's burial were settled and a vow made uh, concerning them by Joseph, the things that we now read today will come to pass. And the news is as one would expect from such a thought, which is the continuation of verse 1, that Joseph was told, indeed, your father is sick. In the previous passage, it was quite apparent that Jacob was on his way out. His strength would never return, and the bed that he was on at that time would be the last bed that he would ever be in. But we have to remember that his father Isaac was blind, and he was confined to his bed for more than 40 years, despite, you know, he was already old. And Jacob also is old. He's in his infirmity, but he could have lasted for many more years, just as Isaac did. But now word is brought back to Joseph that Jacob isn't just old and in bed, but he's sick. The word used here in the Hebrew is chole. It's a word which gives the sense of being worn out or quickly wearing out through sickness or aging. It is the certain sign in someone of Jacob's already advanced state that they will die soon. Verse 1 continues, And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Jacob lived in Goshen, which is way over here, and Joseph home. Uh, he would have been much closer to where Pharaoh was. That's because of his position and his high status. And along with that, his two sons, sons would have lived with him as well. And they would have been over there with Joseph, enjoying the high life. But like Moses later, it was understood by Joseph that nothing could substitute a walk with the Lord, not even all of the riches of Egypt. As the Geneva Bible states about this verse, Joseph valued his children being received into Jacob's family, which was the church of God, more than enjoying all of the treasures of Egypt. And so again, like the many other bookends that we have on the Egyptian years that we've seen already, we have another set. Those are in the high life in Egypt are Manasseh and Ephraim, Joseph's sons. That's at the beginning of those Egyptian years. And at the end of it, you have Moses. He's also in the high life of Egypt. But for all of them, there's a rejection of Egypt's high status, wealth, honor. They've traded all of it for the sake of Christ. This is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 11, which says there about Moses, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. What Moses is noted for in the Bible's Hall of Fame is what Manasseh and Ephraim are also faithful for. And so Joseph brings these sons probably for several reasons. First, because of the distance between their homes, this would probably be the last time that they would ever see their grandfather alive again. Also, because this would be the last time they'd see him, whatever his words, whatever he says, would be a memorial for the conduct of the rest of their own lives. And finally, Joseph may have been concerned about these sons even being accepted into the family at all because they had been born to an Egyptian mother 
and they had been raised apart from them down in the land of Egypt. Joseph may not have even considered the blessing that's coming, and he simply might have just wanted them to be acknowledged as sons of the covenant people. And they will be, but they will be given an even greater honor than that. The grace of Jacob upon these two boys is something that will affect humanity from this point all the way until the end of the age. And it will be especially memorable for them because unlike most paintings of this scene, if you've ever seen a painting of Jacob blessing these two sons, you usually see two little boys being blessed by him. And that's not the case at all. These are two adults. They're at least 19 and possibly older. And we know this because in Genesis chapter 41, in the 50th verse, it said these words, And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenat, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Now Jacob arrived in the second or the third year of the famine at the age of 130. He's now 147 years old. So you take those 17 years plus the first years of the famine before his arrival, make these sons at least 19 years old and probably older. They are old enough to understand what will happen and they will understand the great honor which is going to be bestowed upon them. Verse two continues, or I'm sorry, verse two. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. The message from Jacob's house has been received, and the messenger now passes back to Jacob the news of Joseph's coming. Joseph probably told him that he would come immediately because the response by Israel is also immediate. Verse 2 continues. It says, And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. There's a sudden change in one verse, in this one verse from the name Jacob to the name Israel. As we've seen, and we're going to continue to see all the way through the rest of the Bible, there is Jacob, who is the man of flesh, and he's the man of bones. He's weak in his spirit, he's weak in his body, and he's troubled in his mind. And then there is Israel. It is he who strives with God, who proclaims his name, and who relies on him for strength and for his speech. When Jacob speaks, it is as Jacob the man. When Israel speaks, it is for his God and under his inspiration. And that's reflective of you, and it's reflective of me, as we live our lives in this body of flesh, or we live by the Spirit of God that he has granted us. It is the constant struggle that every person that is called on Jesus Christ faces from moment to moment. We can either rely on ourselves, or we can rely on God. Israel now strengthens himself and sits up on his bed, relying in his God. Jacob is a man who speaks the words of men, he lives in uncertainty and is weak in body and mind. He walks through this world fearful of the day when his time will end and he will face death unkind. Israel is he who strengthens himself in his God. He relies not on self, but in the eternal hope ever so sure. Each step that he takes is a part of his faithful trod. He knows that living in Christ is how he will endure. These two facets of the same person we see are reflective of ourselves as on this earth we live. We can worry and fret, or we can trust Christ implicitly, and all our cares and woes to him we can give. Better we live in the Spirit and in the power of God than to fumble and fall as on this earth we trod. Our second thought today, the blessing of God Almighty. It's verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Lutz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Without considering what is coming, the details that Jacob now relates to Joseph seem kind of out of place. Instead of just saying what's on his mind, he gives a history lesson from his life. But in the context of the coming blessing, this is exactly what needs to be said. 
When we want to convince somebody of the effect of Jesus in our own lives, we often tell about the changes that have arisen in our lives. When we want to console somebody who's in the pit of despair, we remind them of the promises of God that he has made to us in his word. And when we speak at a funeral, if there's any hope at all for that departed person who is in Christ, we remind them and all of the people around the casket of the promises that Jesus Christ has made concerning the resurrection and eternal life. And I'll give you a perfect example of this because just this week, a girl that I've known since I was probably six years old or seven years old emailed me. And she said, Charlie, I'm in a real dark place right now. She's a Christian. She knows the Lord, but she's struggling with some issues in her life. And all I did was repeat to her the word of God. I repeated to her the assurances that Christ has given us in his word. And that's exactly what Jacob is doing right now. He's taking past life experiences and he's getting ready to tell Joseph something else. And by giving the past experiences, they can rely on what he is saying is truth. The things that we do in order to establish a baseline for the words that follow are very important. Words of comfort without being grounded in reality are merely deceptive words. If I say to somebody, you know, oh, it's going to be okay, and I know it's not going to be okay, then I'm just simply deceiving them. Words of hope, which have no basis except in delusion, are words which are really only hopeless. You know, you can tell somebody, oh, they don't know Jesus Christ, they die, and you say, oh, they're going to be in heaven someday. That's hopeless. Why would you do that? That's deceiving somebody. If somebody doesn't know Jesus Christ, they are going to be separated from God. And so we want to tell them about Christ now. I got to tell you, words of promise which cannot be fulfilled are merely lies. You know, I'll be there next week. I'll see you at the, the party next week and you don't come. Well, you just lied to somebody and they're going to know it. The only thing that we have is the surety of our words to people. And when we're speaking to somebody about religious matters, the only thing that we have is the surety of what God has already told us. If God has told us that he will resurrect us to eternal life, he will do it. And if he says, you need to call on the name of Jesus Christ in order to be resurrected, then you must do that. And for me to say anything contrary to that would be to lie to you. Then it would be to give you a false sense of hope and a false sense of security. And so in order to establish that what he will convey is something which is based both in reality and in the sureness of God's capable hands, Jacob takes the time to impart his brief history lesson it comes right from his own past. He tells his beloved son, Joseph, that God Almighty appeared to him at Lutz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed him. Well, if God appeared to him, and it's a true story, then what he is about to say must be true. You see what he's doing? He's just repeating God's word in order to show a sound foundation of what he is going to say in the future words to Joseph. Actually, though, God appeared to Jacob twice in the same spot. The first time was way, way, way back in Genesis chapter 28 as he fled from his brother Esau up to Mesopotamia from the anger and the threats that were coming at him from him. The second time was after his return to Canaan about 20 years later. He was uh, just about to be reconciled to his brother Esau or actually it had just happened and now God met him, met him again. The time that is being referred to in this talk with Joseph right now is the second visit. Although the same basic promises were made to him both times, the name God Almighty or El Shaddai was only used by God of himself in the second visit. So we know he's talking about the second visit and not the first. But what is curious is that Jacob calls the name of the place Lutz, not Bethel. 
Lutz was the original name of the location, but Jacob renamed it Bethel after he received the blessing. Instead of the pronounced name, he reverts to the original one. Why would he do that? This asks us to stop and consider the meaning of Lutz once again. The word Lutz comes from a verb, which means to turn aside, kind of in a negative way, such as turning aside from wisdom or maybe being a twisted person. Therefore, Lutz was named after a crooked and perverse generation of people that lived in that place. Lutz then, as we saw in those earlier sermons, is a picture of the earth. It started off sweetly. There it was in the Garden of Eden, and it became bitter. However, God has a plan to restore to the world those idyllic conditions. It's realized in the book of Revelation. What man corrupted, God will purify. What was made bitter will be made sweet once again. And this is why Jacob calls the place Lutz, not Bethel, because he's going to speak about a coming promise. The words that he's going to speak to his son and to his grandsons are intended to be used as a part of that plan where man moves from the crooked and the perverse world to the sweet and the purified house of God. As always, the Bible is asking us to return and to think on the plan of redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the Lord and it is his promises that are being brought to memory to instill in the minds of those sons that they have more than just an earthly responsibility, but they have a heavenly hope that they will be a part of. It's something that he is assuring them is coming. And this hope is seen in the words of God Almighty to his servant Jacob, as we see in verse 4, which says these words, And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Jacob pulls out of this blessing that was given to him in, uh, uh, back at Bethel, only a portion of the blessing. Okay, Here's what was said by God to him in Genesis 35. I'm going to read you the whole blessing. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. From this blessing, Jacob focuses on the fruitfulness of the spiritual heritage, the increase in descendants, and the land promise as an everlasting possession. In this here, then, we have a foreshadowing of the blessing that he's going to give to his two grandsons. He is selecting his words in anticipation of that monumentous event. Then God appeared to Jacob again when from Padanaram he came and he blessed him right there and then. And God said to him, Jacob, about your name. Your name is Jacob, as you know. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. This I bestow. So he called his name Israel, a name of good rapport. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. It is true. Be fruitful and multiply, as I have now said. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body in the years ahead. The land which Abraham and Isaac I gave, I give to you. It is your inherited right, and to your descendants after you, this road I pave. I give this land, and I do so with delight. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him there, face to face. Calling the past to mind is a way of testifying to the promises of the future. If the promise is from God, then it is more sure than the ground beneath our feet. 
Jacob calls the promises of God to attention so that his next actions will cement the future of these two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, as he will now adopt them as his own. And as a side note, I want to read something from the Geneva Bible. In this verse, it footnotes the words everlasting possession. Let me read you that verse again so you know what I'm talking about. It says here, And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and make you make of you a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. The Geneva Bible footnotes this, and they say concerning everlasting possession, these words, which is true in the carnal Israel until the coming of Christ, and in the spiritual forever. Now, if you wonder what that means, they're saying that the promise of an everlasting possession of the land of Israel is only truly fulfilled in a spiritual sense. In other words, they felt when they translated the Geneva Bible back in 1560 that what God had promised in this land grant applied to the church spiritually, not Israel actually. They failed to understand at their point in history that Israel was actually only under a temporary, not a permanent punishment. This misunderstanding is carried on in the world today, as we've seen in our prophecy updates. And churches and denominations all over the world believe this. What they failed to see in the past has become immovable blinders in the present. But there have been those who wondered, even as early as the 1800s, if this idea was wrong. So I want to read you something from the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary on this particular verse. They say, whether these words, meaning the words that were spoken by Jacob, are to be viewed in a limited sense as pointing to the many centuries during which the Jews were occupiers of the Holy Land, or whether the words bear a wider meaning and intimate that the scattered tribes of Israel are to be reinstated in the land of promise as their everlasting possession are points that have not yet been satisfactorily determined. Well, guess what? Since that was written in the 1800s, the points have been satisfactorily determined. What God has shown us in these many pictures in Genesis have been proven in the reality of the present. God is God, and we must trust that his words are more than just spiritual about the land of Israel. They are based on the reality of his covenant to his people, Israel. In the typology of the book of Genesis, we see it, and in the pr prophetic utterances which permeate the entire Old Testament of the Bible, it notes that the land is given to Israel and they are back in the land in our lifetime to fulfill his purposes. Our third thought today, the sons of Israel. This is verses five through seven. Verse five says, and now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Anybody get it? Anyone? In verse 1, it said, Joseph took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now the names are reversed by Jacob. Manasseh was the oldest, and so verse 1 records them in birth order. But now Jacob has given Ephraim preeminence. And what has occurred in this verse upon these two boys is the highest honor that could have been bestowed upon both Joseph and them. It is for sure known that the sons of Israel are the covenant people. But in the past, it's always been one son. It was Isaac, and then it was Jacob. But now, all of the sons of Israel, all of them are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh moves them to an equal footing and position with the others. And this is going to continue to be seen all the way through as redemptive history continues to unfold. 
But already in this adoption, there is an indication of supremacy within the adoption. Ephraim being named before his older brother is a divine hint of what is going to become a reality before this meeting is ended. And this point of supremacy is going to continue through the many, many long years of Israel's history. No word, not one single word is without meaning in the Bible. And even the placement of those words unfolds pictures of God's working in marvelous ways. Verse 5 continues, As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Now what the Hebrew literally says here is, Ephraim and Manasseh, as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be to me. By elevating them to positions of his own sons, he has elevated Joseph among all of the brothers. Joseph, in essence, receives a double inheritance and thus the birthright of the land of Israel. This should have gone, gone as you know, to uh, Reuben, the eldest son, but he forfeited his right to, doing, to getting that when he went and uh, slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. This is going to continue to be recorded in their historical documents as late as the book of 1 Chronicles. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, it says these words, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to birthright. Instead of him, Reuben, Joseph is given the inheritance birthright, which consists of a double portion of the assets when he dies. And he also, once again, in this verse, elevates Ephraim above Manasseh. He says, Ephraim and Manasseh as Reuben and Simeon. Despite this, though, the right to rule, the obedience of the brothers, and the Savior himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, is going to descend through Judah, not through Joseph. And what this means for the two brothers, though, is that they are expected to leave the high life of Egypt and to be united with Israel in their inheritance. The importance of their being 19 or older is, as I said earlier, is very, very important. And the reason why is because these sons are old enough to make up their own minds. They can reject this or they can be united with Israel. History bears out that they agreed with the adoption. They accepted the covenant inheritance and they became united to the people of Israel. They made what is the very wisest choice of all. Matthew Henry eloquently states their decision this way. Those are worthy of double honor who through God's grace break through the temptations of worldly wealth and preferment to embrace religion and disgrace and in poverty. Jacob will have Ephraim and Manasseh to know that it is better to be low and in the church than high and out of it. And so I'd have to ask you right now, what are you willing to give up for the case of Jesus, cause of Jesus Christ? If the world continues to go the way that it's going right now, People are being persecuted for the name of Jesus in other countries. It's happening more in Europe. It's happening up in Canada, and it's starting to come to America, where you say, I'm a Christian, and you can get fired. If you open your Bible in your, your uh, work environment, people, you know, they'll, they'll tell you, you've got to leave this place. The government is hostile to Christians, and it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. That's what the Bible shows us. So the question is, are you willing to stand for Jesus Christ? Are you willing to do that? Because there may be a time where they're going to ask you to say, I'm not a follower of Christ, or you're going to be shot. And if that happens, what choice are you going to make? God asks us to think these things through now. He asks us to think it through now. So please, make your determination to stand on Jesus Christ no matter what happens. The highest honor of this world is not wealth, it's not fame, and it's not riches. Rather, the highest honor is to be united to the Lord, 
and to the covenant people of God. Be they rich or be they poor by the world's standards, it is better to be with them than to be with the wealthy and to be cast into the pit someday. This is the high honor that we have in the church today. We all possess it if we've called on Christ. Because of him, we are adopted sons of God. In this adoption of the father of the sons of his own son, we see a picture of our own adoption by God. And this is because of our position in Jesus Christ. It's an adoption which is explained in Hebrews chapter 2. Let me read you this. For both he who sanctifies, meaning Jesus Christ, and those who are being sanctified, meaning anybody who's called on Jesus Christ, are all of one. For which reason he, meaning Jesus, is not ashamed to call them his brethren. Imagine that, being called a brother of God. And he goes on, he says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children whom God has given me. God gave children to Jesus Christ and thus we are called sons of God. This is why there's such detail and such specificity given in these particular verses about Jacob adopting his grandsons. It's pointing to how God works within humanity to bring many sons to glory. Because of Jesus Christ, pictured here by Joseph, we are given an eternal inheritance among the people of God. What we're seeing in these verses is picturing you and me. That's what we're seeing. Verse 6, your offspring whom you beget after them shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. Okay, what he just said there is that if Joseph has any other children, they're not going to be reckoned under Ephraim, they're not going to be reckoned as sons of Israel. They're going to be reckoned under the two brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh. There's no indication in the Bible as to whether Joseph actually had any more sons or not. If he did, they were reckoned as his and they were named under one of the other brothers for inheritance purposes. They couldn't be listed directly under Joseph because Joseph's inheritance went to Ephraim and Manasseh. And so if he had any other boys, he would have had to have named them under one son or the other, and they and their families after them would have been assimilated into the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh as the tribes of Israel. All right, verse 7. This is our last verse of the day. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. Now, I got to tell you what, this is one of those very surprising verses that pops up in the Bible from time to time. For what seems no reason at all, and which becomes a verse almost beyond commentary within the context of the passage, Jacob recounts the death of his beloved wife, Joseph's mother, Rachel. One, one, you know, you just need to ask, what does this have to do with the adoption of the sons or anything else that has come about in the previous six verses? The only connection that would maybe come to mind immediately is that Jacob is tying the death of Rachel to the adoption of Joseph's sons because her childbearing days were cut short. So kind of to say, you know, I'm giving her more sons because she died at an early age. Because of this and because he is the son of wife by choice, the elevation of Ephraim and Manasseh to this status is the granting and the acknowledgement of his birthright. But this still does not explain why he used so many words, names, and places to make the point. All right? And because of this selection, despite being called the 12 tribes of Israel, there are technically 14 sons. 
And the 12 tribes are listed all the way throughout the rest of the Bible with different variations of their names. And that goes all the way through to the book of Revelation. This then is also parallel, interestingly, to the 14 named apostles. There were 12 original ones, and then Judas killed himself, so they selected Matthias in Acts chapter 1, and then Paul was chosen by God directly as an apostle. So that names 14 apostles. It's an interesting pattern, but guess what? It still doesn't explain why Jacob used all these words. However, among other things, it is the reason why Ephraim was named first before his older brother. Ephraim and Ephrath, which is used in this verse, is the same word. The I am at the end is simply a plural. It's like we add an S to the end of a word and we have, you know, uh, uh, Charlie become Charlies and there's more than one Charlie. I am, that's all that does. All right. Because of the connection between the place of death of his beloved wife, which was Ephrath, which he mentions twice, Ephrath, Ephrath in one sentence, and the names of Joseph's sons, he may have decided that he would elevate him above his other grandson, Manasseh. But even that only makes the rest of the verse more peculiar. Why did he mention Padan? Why did he mention Canaan? And why the distance to Bethlehem? What does that have to do with anything? Unless he is prophesying by the Spirit, it doesn't really make any sense at all. And so we will now evaluate the entire sentence word by word, and it'll only take a minute to see what God is telling us. Padan comes from a word, pada. It means to ransom. This word is used 11 times in the Bible, and this is the very last time that it's going to be used. But I want to tell you that it is the only time of those 11 times that it is used alone. Every other one of the 10 times, it says Padan Aram. It doesn't do that here. Rachel means you, as in a little you lamb. It's the same word used when speaking of Jesus in Isaiah 53. It says these words. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. Sheep is that word. So he opened not his mouth. The next word of interest is translated beside here. Jacob says, Rachel died beside me. Some scholars say he died, she died at my side. Others say near me or to me, where they mean this happened to me. She died, and this was a bad thing that happened to me. However, one guy, a guy named Lunge, translated this for me, and he gave his reason why. He said, in the sense of sharing with me my toils and perils, and so bringing on herself the deadly travail which cut her off. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? This is what this picture we're going to see will show us. After this, the name Canaan is used. Uh, the term Canaan comes from a verb, which is kana. It means humbled, a person that's humbled or subdued or lowly. All right. The uh, idea is that it brings a proud or recalcitrant people or spirit into subjection. Now, that sounds like us when we call on Jesus Christ, doesn't it? This is all being prefigured in this one verse. It doesn't seem to make any sense. The next name is Ephrath. It means two things. It means either ash heap or place of fruitfulness. Jacob says this name twice in the same sentence. And because he does, the name Ephraim, the plural, comes to mind, being the plural of Ephrath. Both translations then, ash heap and place of fruitfulness, are implied because he's used it twice. After this, he uses a very unusual word in the Bible. It's the word kivrat. It's translated as a little distance. This is derived from the surrounding text because we know it's a little distance between Ephrath and Bethlehem. However, the term actually means exactly the opposite in Hebrew. The term kivrat ivretz in this verse means much of land, not a little distance. 
It's used only three times in the Bible, and guess what? Surprisingly, this word comes from a word which means long ago or a great while. And finally, this verse mentions Bethlehem, which means house of bread. All of this wording in a sentence which doesn't seem to belong at all in the entire train of thought. God must be telling us something about the work of his son, Jesus Christ, once again, as he has so many times before in the Bible. So taking everything that I just explained, which I know you don't remember, but just listen to what comes out of it. Taking that verse that I just read and explaining it the way I just explained it to you in one simple verse. Here's what it says. But as for me, this is Jacob speaking, representing corporate Israel. But as for me, when I came from the place of ransom, the lamb died for me in my place in the land of the humbled on the journey when there was a long distance to the place of fruitfulness. And I buried the lamb in the place of ashes, the land of affliction, when sin was judged in the lamb. That is where the house of bread is. If you see it, this is Israel's future acknowledgement of Jesus Christ and his work. In our last 60 sermons, all of the many pictures of Jacob's life, which show the history of redemption, next moved into the pictures of Joseph's life. They focused mostly on the separation between Joseph and his brothers, which pictured the separation between Jesus and Israel. It's a separation which has lasted now for 2,000 years of human history. For Jacob, everything led to that wondrous moment when he cried out just a few sermons ago, Joseph, my son, is still alive. At that moment, he was revived in his spirit. It is the moment of Israel's collective return to God and his covenant graces. Jacob, picturing the corporate body of Israel, has in this one verse given us a snapshot of that acknowledgement. And with this in mind, we will be better able to understand the blessing that we're going to see in the weeks ahead upon Ephraim and Manasseh. Everything in these short stories points to the work of Jesus Christ in history. Every word is developed into thousands and thousands of pictures of him. It is Jesus Christ that God wants us to focus on. He wants us to listen to him. He wants us to cherish him and to exalt him. It is all about Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, there is a time which is future to us now when Israel will call out to Jesus and they will be saved. This one verse that we just looked at is a recount of that. All of redemptive history is in our lifetime moving towards that wondrous point. Jacob's words here once again confirm what is happening in our world today. If you aren't a part of that marvelous tapestry of love and grace which is found in the giving of God's Son, he did this to restore us to him. I want to ask you just another minute to explain to you once again why it's so important to call on Jesus Christ and to be saved. And I'm going to do it in a way I've never done before. Usually I, I explain what Jesus did, and then I just say, if you want to accept Jesus, uh, please do. But today I want to ask Cassandra, and I want to ask Leslie to come up here. Please, come on up here. Now, I've never done this before, but I want to give an object lesson of what it means to be saved. So come on up. and One of you stand here and one of you stand here. Okay? Come on over here, Leslie. I don't want to embarrass either of you, but I want to ask you a couple questions. Okay? Move a little forward so I can see you because I'm an old guy and I can't go leaning back too much. Now I want to ask you first. Is there a time in your life when you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins? There is, isn't there? I know there is. I remember that day. Now, let me ask you something. You're the most precious girl I think I've ever seen, you, your whole family. But let me ask you, has your life changed since then? 
Can you testify to that and say it's true? Yeah? Do you feel better about your life? Do you feel better about your family? Do you feel better about everything that's happening? And do you remember I made a promise to you when I talked to you about Jesus? Do you remember that? I said that if you ever needed anything, you can call me. And I'll always be there. And I'll try to help you in anything you need in your future. Okay? You see, she's had a change in her life. Now, I want to ask you something. Because I've never sat down, and I asked your father permission to do this. I've never actually sat down and told you why Jesus came. You're always so busy at, at home. You're running around, and we say hi, and you come out and pray with us, but then you go back in. And so I want to ask you, because this is the most important decision that you will ever make in your life. I want to ask you a couple questions. I'm going to ask you a real embarrassing question first. Have you ever told a lie? Yes. Okay. You know the Bible says that if you lie, you're breaking God's law. That's called sin. You know that, don't you? Okay. Now, do you know the Bible also says that if you break one law, one law in God's law, you've broken the whole law because it's a codified law. It's, it's one body of law. In other words, if you have lied, it's as good as if you've murdered or if you've you know, done any other thing that the law says. The law is broken, and it can never be repaired again by you because you can't go back and undo it because the sin has already happened. Do you understand that? Okay. So, what are you going to do? Because we all have to pay for our sins. I'll give you an example. Suppose you're driving down the highway and you're doing 150 miles an hour. I'm sure you would, too. So you're driving really fast, and the judge says you're going so fast that I'm going to charge you a $1,000 fine, and you don't have $1,000. Now what? Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a lot, right? Let me ask you something. If I said I want to pay that fine for you, the judge will accept it, won't he? Because he doesn't care where the money comes from. It just has to be paid. Well, this is what Jesus Christ did for us. Jesus Christ died to pay our sin debt. So now we have a choice. Every person in here and every person that lives on this planet has a choice. And that choice is, I am going to face God because we're all going to die. We saw Jacob, he's about to die here. We're all going to die and we're going to have to face God. And he's going to judge us. And he's going to say, did you break one of my commandments? He already knows you have. And you're going to admit that you have. And then you're going to be separated from him for all eternity. You can never be with God again because you've broken his law. Or you can have your penalty paid in his son. And that's what the cross is. Jesus Christ gave his life in exchange for what you have done wrong. That one sin, even if, you, and I know you're perfect other than that, you've never done anything else wrong. <laughs> no. But that one sin has taken away your right to be with God. And Jesus will forgive you if you call on him. And only you can make that choice. Nobody else can make it for you only you and your sister and Julio and your brother and your mother and your father and every other person in here must make that decision individually and so Cassandra I will ask you today to just ask Jesus to forgive you of any of your sins and to let you be renewed, renewed in him and he will he'll, he'll take care of you and he will give you that eternal life that he can only give you if you ask him for it Okay, I'm not going to ask you to do it in front of anybody here because I'm not here to embarrass you. But I would ask that before you walk out of that door today, you would bow your head and ask Jesus to forgive you. And you saw the change that happened in this precious girl. I've seen it. I know the parents have seen it. She's wonderful, isn't she? And she's going to live forever in the presence of Jesus because of that. And if you've never done that, I would ask you to do that too. I'm going to give you one more verse and I'm going to shut up. And the Bible says, Today is the day of God's favor. Now is the time of salvation. Do you remember at the beginning of the uh, sermon, I talked about Javari? You knew him, didn't you? 
and we don't know if he was saved or not. I can't tell anybody in my heart he's going to be in heaven with me. And that makes me sad. And I'll think about that until the day I go to meet Jesus and find out if he's there or not. You have to make your choice. And you don't know when your day is going to come, okay? You guys go ahead and sit down. Come here. Give me a kiss. Come here. I love both of you. Go on. Our closing verse today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 33. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. His glory is like a firstborn bull and his horns like the horns of the wild ox. Together with them, he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Next week will be Genesis 48 verses 8 through 16. It's entitled, By Faith, Jacob. That's our 121st Genesis sermon. And I will tell you this before I give you our poem, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. And if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't be quiet about it. Don't be quiet about it. Tell everybody. Cassandra, if you decide for Jesus, I want you to tell Julio. Take him to church somewhere where he can understand this good message of Jesus Christ. All right? Praise the Lord for what he's done in your life. The change I've seen in that man right there. Don't walk out of this building today without calling on Jesus Christ. Our poem today is called Adopted as Sons. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He had to be quick. And next we learn Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself, though he was old, and sat up on the bed with strength anew. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty to me at Lutz appeared in the land of Canaan and blessed me as I in holy awe feared and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you also and I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land that you have come to know to your descendants after you and of everlasting possession. The words I speak are forever true. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, names you did assign, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon are sons to me, they shall be mine. This is my decree. Your offspring whom you beget, any others, after them shall be yours. Have no fears. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance through all future years. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan. On the way when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, she, my precious gem, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. The adoption of the sons of Joseph, as we are shown, gives insights into how God deals with us. God has also taken us for his own when we call on the name of his son, Jesus. Though undeserved, we are saved by his grace, and we are brought into his family care. Forever, because of Jesus, we shall see God's face in the marvelous new Jerusalem when we arrive there. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God who prevailed o'er the grave. Through his wondrous work, Jesus is capable to save. So call on Christ as Lord and be reconciled to God. Be at peace with him from now through all eternity. First as on this world and in this life we trod, and next in his glorious presence before the glassy sea. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach on this very difficult passage. It's very difficult to get through these words because of the minuteness of the detail. 
But in the end, we see that there is a reason for it. Your word is to be treated carefully and with precious care. And I would pray that uh, each person here got something out of it that will bless them. And I pray for any person here that has never called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they would do that and that they would tell the others, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Lord, we uh, just want to thank you for the people that are visiting here today. It's good to have them here and we're honored by that. And I would pray that each person that's here would go out and have a, a good day, a safe day, a day of family and friends and thinking on you and your goodness. And Lord, please uh, take care of them in the week ahead. Bless them with many blessings, so many so that they cannot help but know that it's from you. And then they can turn around and thank you and praise you for it because you're infinitely worthy of it. And bring us again to this wonderful place next week and help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And may you be exalted. May you be gloriously exalted in all things. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. And we do so in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. we get the instruction for taking the Lord's Supper in the book of 1 Corinthians. And there, Paul writes these words to us. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he gave thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he also took the cup, and he would have blessed this as well. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melecha Olam, Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Take a moment and let's just talk to the Lord about our lives over the past week.
Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, please come forward and partake of the table. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.